the Fort Worth Star-Telegram, this is Out of the Cold, a new podcast about unsolved and solved cold cases in North Texas. I'm Deanna Boyd. I've been a reporter for more than 20 years, almost all of them working the cops beat. And if you're covering cops, you're covering murders. I prefer to write about the whodunits, the unsolved cases that have more questions than answers especially cold cases, ones that have been filed away as unsolved and do nothing but gather dust. I mean, I can't even imagine anything worse than losing a sister or father or best friend and then to have nothing happen in the case. No arrest, no closure. How do you get over that? I mean, can you even get over that? The story we're about to tell is from the 1970s and details a deadly encounter between two Fort Worth teenagers. One is Donald Rogers, he's dead. The other is Melvin Knox, who killed him. It's one of the oldest cold cases I've covered, and easily one of the most troubling. Melvin shows the dark path early in life. He's had numerous stints in prison for burglary and using and dealing drugs. Once he even threatened a couple with a shotgun. You'll hear later about his obsession with guns. But Melvin also had a secret. He'd been a suspect in Donald's death from the beginning. He'd even been arrested in the case, but the charges later dropped. Melvin had always denied he was the killer. It wasn't until this summer that Melvin, now a kind-looking black man whose white hair and matching beard show his 59 years, stood before a judge and for the first time publicly owned up to the murder. And you're pleading guilty because you are guilty. These were the words that siblings of the victim had been desperate to hear after waiting almost 44 years but it was a resolution that sadly, their parents would not be alive to see. It would have been nice uh, had he done it 43 years ago. I wish my parents uh, had been here to hear it, to see it. That's Jeff Rogers, Donald's oldest brother. It was because of Jeff and his older sister, Carolyn Rogers, that Donald's case was even reopened. They had questions, I have questions. What exactly happened that day of the shooting? How did Melvin get away with murder for so many years? Did prosecutors drop the ball back then? Is anyone else at fault? But let's start at the beginning. It's 1973 in Fort Worth, and the biggest news of the year was the opening of DFW Airport. If you've flown into DFW, and who hasn't, the neighborhood where this happened is a little less than 30 miles away in southeast Fort Worth. The Rogers family was a large one. There were six children ranging in age from 22 to three. The father, Jeff Oliver Rogers Sr., was an Army veteran. He worked as a linotypist at the Fort Worth Mine, which was a weekly black newspaper, and later as a maintenance worker at a hospital. His wife, Fern, was a full-time nurse at a different hospital. So with six kids, growing up in the Rogers home came with a lot of responsibilities. The older siblings helped raise the younger ones. If you worked, you were expected to hand over a portion of your earnings to mom and dad. Cynthia Brooks, the second oldest child, said the kids just assumed that that was the norm with every family. We were latchkey kids. We would come home, and I think from first grade, six years old, seven years old, and we, because there were quite a few children, we all had different duties. Fern Rogers was the one who delivered the punishment in the family, took a no-nonsense approach. When she said no TV, you better believe there was no TV because she took the TV cable with her to work. My mother was a very clever disciplinarian. Very. She was she was ahead of her time. In those areas, in those in that era, it was customary, you know, to take a belt and whip your kids. And I'm not saying she didn't do that on occasion. 
but when it comes to six kids and you have to discipline them with a belt, it, it's a little laborious. So she so. would wait until everybody did something. And then that's when she a would group, discipline us. A group whooping. That's right. <laughs> she would take us a into the bathroom whooping. one at a time. That's now, Carolyn Rogers, the oldest child, chiming in. But Fern had her soft side. Her kids said if they begged and pleaded with their mom, they could often talk her out of the whipping. Cynthia recalls a time, however, when she couldn't talk her way out of trouble, the time she got caught shoplifting a diary at a local store. Most parents would just be horrified. They run downtown, they get their children out, you know, and just hug you and say, well, baby, I'm so sorry. You know what my mother did? She left you. She let me stay in jail overnight. Juvenile, it wasn't jail. It was jail. Juvenile. It was jail, and whatever. And that was juvenile. Anyhow. And I walked the straight and narrow from then on. So they joke about their shenanigans and their punishment back then, but they're not complaining. They understand it was the right thing to do and describe their upbringing as a loving and happy one, one that taught them independence and financial responsibility. And Donald, the second youngest in the family at age 14, seemed to embrace those lessons most of all. All agree Donnie was their father's favorite. So while all the children worked at the newspaper helping their dad, Donald was more engaged than the others. He had a special bond with my dad. Donald would be active. I mean, he would, you know, actively participate. He would go with my dad on runs or interviews for people for the newspaper. He would go with him to make deliveries sometimes. And then ultimately they started this dump truck business. My father went out and bought a dump truck and Donald would go, would go with him on these runs to pick up old cars and old furniture, primarily I think metal, -ish, metal, um, because you could turn a nice profit then. But he was doing that with my dad up until he died. On August 7th, 1973, Donald had handed his most recent earnings over to his dad for safekeeping, money intended to use on new clothes for the upcoming school year. And as he often did, he leaves the family's Rolling Hills home and heads over to Melvin Knox's house, his buddy who lived less than a 10-minute walk away. Now, it's a safe neighborhood, one the Rogers had called home since the late 60s, filled with young families and professionals and somewhat shielded from the rest of the city by its hilly terrain. I think we were the first black family to integrate uh, Rolling Hills. Um, and in those days, you have these the, the black newspapers with the society pages, and I remember... Mm -hmm. Uh, a teacher walking up to me at school and saying, showing me the copy of a newspaper. She said, is this you? Did you move there? And I said, yeah, actually we did. Um, and she said, oh, because that was, you know, the thing. I mean, you had integration of neighborhoods that historically had been white um, and uh, African-Americans, as they did better, they moved into better neighborhoods and that was part of that. As was common in the 1970s, it was okay to ride a bike without a helmet or walk to a friend's house after dark without a worry in the world. Rolling Hills seemed especially safe. Crime happened in other neighborhoods. And while other cities across the U.S. were seeing spikes in their crime rates, in Fort Worth, which was about half the size it is now, crime was actually down in 1973, with the number of homicides falling 17% from 1972. And, and Rolling Hills was a very nice neighborhood. I mean, to the point that we would walk at 10 and 11 o'clock at night from our friends, from our home mm -hmm. to our friend's home. Uh, of course, you can't do that today. But 
we felt safe in that neighborhood. There was no reason for us to feel otherwise. The Knoxes were newer to the neighborhood. Ruth and Curtis Knox owned a small grocery store in town and later in an apartment complex. They'd moved to Rolling Hills from another East Fort Worth neighborhood, one where their son Melvin had already developed a reputation as being tough and streetwise despite his young age. During recent testimony, Georgia Johnson recalled catching a glimpse of Melvin's temper as she and some girlfriends played on Jessamine Street in the early 70s, not far from where Melvin's family lived before moving to Rolling Hills. As she tells it, one of her friends struck another with a rock, causing the injured girl to run home crying. That girl's brother comes out, happens to see Melvin walking down the street, and mistakenly assumes Melvin's the one who threw the rock. So he grabs Melvin, but the other girls jump in and say, hey, Melvin didn't do anything. The brother lets go of Melvin, goes back home, and the situation seems to be over, but it's not. Now keep in mind, Melvin's only 12 or 13 when this occurred. Then sometime, maybe five, 10 minutes later, Melvin comes out of his house with a shotgun. I mean, the gun was big as him. You know, it was, you didn't know what was gonna happen. We were kids, I hadn't seen anything like that. That day, an adult neighbor sees what's happening, steps in and stops Melvin. Not long after, the Knox family moved into their Spanish-style ranch home in the more affluent Rolling Hills neighborhood. With a basketball goal attached to the top of the garage and its prime location at the end of a cul-de-sac, the house made for a popular hangout for teens in the neighborhood, Donald included. Ricky Howard lived on the same street, and he remembers playing basketball with Melvin and another friend at the Knox home on the day before Donald was killed. At some point, Melvin and the other team went inside the house. Not long after, they called Ricky in too. When testifying at Melvin's sentencing hearing, Ricky recounts what happened next. My mother and father's rule was that you didn't go in anybody's house if their parents weren't there. And uh, so I stopped at the door and uh, he, Melvin said, well, I need to see you. And so I said, what is it? He says, come here, I need you to help me do something. So I started down the hall and as I started down the hall, he stepped out of a doorway uh, with a gun in his hand and pointed at me. The gun was close enough that I could, I grabbed the barrel of the gun and pushed to the side. And uh, I told him, I said, man, you don't play with a gun. You know, he says, well, my dad got me this, I believe he said for his birthday. And I said, well, that's nice, but you don't play with a gun. You know, you don't point a gun at anybody. The next day, Ricky and his brother, Randall Howard, were on their way to vacation Bible school and noticed Donald playing basketball with Melvin. Randall would later tell investigators that the sight had worried him because he knew Melvin was a wild kid while Donald was a good kid. And he knew that one day earlier, Melvin had pointed a shotgun at his brother, a foreshadowing of the tragedy that was about to happen. When they returned home a couple hours later, they found their street blocked off and flooded with police cars. So Fort Worth police were called to the Knox home that evening on a possible shooting, stabbing, and robbery. Curtis Knox, Melvin's dad, tells officers that he and his wife Ruth had gone with their two daughters to visit family. When they left, Donald and Melvin were playing basketball outside. When they returned, the boys are no longer outside. After the car was parked, Sheila Knox, then 12, rushed inside to use the restroom in the home's hallway. That's where she saw the bloodied body of a teenager on the bathroom floor. Cold case detective Mike McCormack, who would begin reinvestigating Donald's murder in 2015, gives this vivid account. When the Knox family arrived home and they found Donald, uh, his face was distorted from being shot with a shotgun. 
they believed at first it was Melvin. Then they received a call from Mrs. Knox's brother, Aaron Mashaw, telling them that Melvin was with him and he was bringing him back to the scene. Officers who responded that night find a gruesome scene. The pink tiled floor, counter, and wall are speckled and streaked with blood. A corner of the cream patterned wallpaper is stained with blood splatter. On the floor in the corner, between the shower and toilet, Donald's body lay face up, his right hand crossed over his chest. His head was against the shower, the shower door was open, it was shattered from the shotgun blast. Uh, he had a large kitchen knife still in his chest. Authorities would soon determine the brown-handled butcher knife still plunged in Donald's chest had been taken from a knife drawer, which was glaringly open in the Knox's otherwise tidy kitchen. When Melvin arrives on the scene with his uncle, he details for officers what had happened. They were playing basketball. Donald has to use the restroom. He escorted Donald in the house and went back outside. Was outside for five or so minutes and heard glass breaking in the back of his house. He walked around to the back of his house to see what that was and then he heard a shot inside the house. He immediately ran away from the scene, down the hill to his uncle's house. He said he never went in the house. He doesn't know what happened. But the crime scene doesn't add up. And from the beginning, police are suspicious of Melvin's claims. First off, there's no property missing from the home. In the living room, investigators find the family's big and boxy television console toppled over, its screen pushed into the carpet. Nearby was a large rock that had evidently been used to smash through the now shattered sliding glass door. When officers lifted that television, there was no glass under the television, which you would expect if the glass breaking came first. The glass would go all over the floor, the TV would get knocked on top of it. Also, the TV wasn't damaged in any way, as it looked like somebody had laid it down versus just knocked it over. Tucked inside a cedar-lined closet in the master bedroom, crime scene officer David Wisenhunt finds the family's two shotguns, a 16-gauge bolt-action Mossberg, known for its ease of use and reliability, and a 12-gauge. Prosecutor Matt Smith said Wisenhunt would surmise the 16-gauge had been used to shoot Donald. Smelled the 16-gauge, and through his training and experience, he felt that it had smelled as it had been recently fired. Also, Frank Schiller, who did the firearm analysis, he examined a piece of shotgun wadding that was located near the body of Donald Rogers, and he was able to opine back then that that came from a 16-gauge shotgun. So this discovery only adds to the absurdity of the crime scene. I mean, why would someone break into the home and within a minute discover the shotgun, shoot Donald with it, then return the gun to the closet? And while no one saw Melvin shoot Donald, a 15-year-old Nolan High School sophomore would provide police another clue that Melvin wasn't being honest. Chris Gwynn didn't know Melvin or Donald, but he'd been jogging outside his nearby family home that evening when he would witness something he didn't even realize was significant. Uh, I heard a loud noise um, and then gra a glass breaking. Um, and I immediately looked over to my right um, and I saw a young black kid um, uh, uh, running down the hill from this particular house. A little later that evening, uh, I told my mom what happened. And she said, oh my gosh, I just saw something on the news about a kid that was killed over there. Jeff Rogers, then 20, was home from military training for a brief visit and would be the one to answer a knock at the family's door that evening. Outside stood Curtis Knox, holding his baby daughter and asking to speak to Jeff's parents. 
I knew something was strange, you know, just because of the way he was asking. There was a sense of, of angst. I all of a sudden heard my father yelling for my mother. And ultimately, uh, I peeked out the back door and I could see uh, uh, whatever information it was uh, uh, really agitated my mother because she started screaming. And a few minutes later, they, uh, they jumped in the car and I heard them squealing uh, down the street. Hearing the sounds of sirens in the near distance, Jeff Rogers eventually jumps into his own car and heads north on Old Mansfield Road toward the activity. There was this crowd of people. The, the police tape was out. And I was standing there with a group of kids, and uh, one of the girls behind me, they were having a conversation with somebody else, and they said, they said, well, uh, some, they were asking what had occurred. They said, well, one of those Rogers, one of those Rogers boys uh, got killed. First time I knew my, my mother's dead. Cynthia had been away at Prairie View A&M University when her little brother was killed. I was sitting in a home economics class. I was in my third year of college. And my teacher said I was to go to the dean of students' um, office. And I got there, and he indicated to me that my brother had been killed. And he had no other details. I think he did say he was shot, had been shot, that I needed to uh, contact my family and then go home. Like her sister, Carolyn was also away at college, but at Texas Southern University in Houston. A family friend stopped at her apartment to break the news to her about Donald and bring both Carolyn and Cynthia home. And I, I don't remember the ride home. That's what we were talking about. I don't remember the ride home. I remember us picking Cynthia up. Yeah, everything after that is just um, blanks for all of us. Just, you know, you, you, you get the initial information and then you go into this haze, this fog. The sisters say once home, they were given more details about their little brother's death including Melvin's claim that Donald had been killed by an intruder. Cynthia remembers how her family, even from the very beginning, didn't buy it. When uh, my parents or someone started floating the idea that we suspect that Melvin did this, uh, because the way it was explained just did not sound plausible. It just it didn't make sense. So Donald's death would cripple the Rogers family and, and shatter the innocence of the neighborhood. For a time, kids no longer were able to roam the neighborhood freely. Parents kept a more careful watch over them. This was just a bolt out of the blue. Yeah, right. And, and it shocked our, the, the Rogers Foundation for, right. for years and years. You know, a crime like that was really unheard of in a, in a neighborhood like that. It was, it was actually shocking. Uh, so shocking, I remember when I came home from school after the, the death, his death, people would just drive by the house and just just sort of look to see, see if they could catch someone, you know, coming out or going in, uh, you know, animals in a zoo. I remember feeling that way then. On August 10th, 1973, three days after Donald's death, a short follow-up story in the Fort Worth Star-Telegram's evening edition announced that an arrest had been made earlier that day in Donald's murder. The article doesn't identify Melvin by name. Remember, he was a juvenile but noted that the 15-year-old's arrest came after two hours of questioning and that he'd been released to his attorney. Now, the Rogers children assumed that Melvin was now in the hands of the criminal justice system and he'd be dealt with accordingly. And after we had buried him, the very next day I left. I, I came back to school early because I wanted to, uh, I guess I wanted to forget as much as I possibly could, as quickly as I could, and I guess I did. But the family was forever changed. 
Whereas before, Fern Rogers insisted that all the children come home for Christmas. After Donald's death, the big holiday celebration stopped. The older kids found excuses not to return home so often. Home, just like their parents, were no longer the same. Their father was hit hardest of all, Cynthia explains. He wasn't as outgoing. Uh, he didn't have his buddy with him. He didn't have his sidekick. So, and I think right after that, he sold the truck mm -hmm. that he and Donnie would use to go do the dump truck business. Um, and so it, it changed him in that way. It took a, a lot of wind out of his sails. It became a family of, of just focusing on what needed to be done on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. I guess, if, yeah, I guess you could say the heart seemed to have gone out of it. Jeff Sr. and Fern Rogers rarely talked about Donald's case, or even Donald himself. It was too painful. And out of respect, the other children didn't push the topic. My parents did not want to talk about it, and they didn't. I went down to the police station to actually see files myself, to read things, because they were away and I was home. They wouldn't show me anything. So, you know, and I never told my folks because I knew they would be upset. As such, the siblings never knew that four months after Donald's death, the charges had been quietly dropped against Melvin. So why Donald's parents would keep that information from their other children, assuming they even knew themselves, is unclear. Maybe they just wanted to spare them additional pain. Maybe they felt telling them would accomplish nothing. But for whatever reason, the parents would go to their graves, Fern at 54 to cancer and her husband at 75, without ever seeing Melvin held accountable for their son's death. But through the years, Carolyn's mind keeps wandering back to one question. What happened to Donald's killer? She does internet searches, she even calls a detective with the Fort Worth Cold Case Unit years ago, but can find no indication that Melvin was ever prosecuted. She passes on those concerns to Jeff, but Jeff thought his brother's murder case had already been resolved, and as such, he initially blows Carolyn off. She had mentioned it to me on a number of occasions over the years, and finally, uh, maybe about two years ago, she brought it up again, and I decided, well, you know, because I worked for juvenile probation at the time, so I decided, you know, well, okay, let me do some work. Let me see what I can find. With help from colleagues, Jeff is able to locate the file on his brother's case. Carolyn was right. The records indicate the charges against Melvin had been dismissed in January 1974 for insufficient evidence and that the case was closed. Cynthia says that news was difficult to fathom. You know, what is it back then that they saw or didn't see that told them that this case is closed? <laughs> when a case is closed, that means it's been solved. Isn't that right? So if it was solved, what was the outcome? There was no outcome. It was just closed. Jeff called the Fort Worth Police Cold Case Unit looking for answers. He spoke to Detective McCormack, who had just taken over as the unit's sole detective two months earlier. So McCormack researches the case. He sees his predecessor in the Cold Case Unit, Detective Brenda Selvey, had also been contacted by Jeff that previous January, and she'd already started locating reports and records in the case. McCormick reviews everything he can get his hands on, and he's thinking, wow, this is a good case. And like the original detectives, he agrees Melvin is the clear suspect. The only problem he can see is the lack of direct evidence linking Melvin to the crime. For example, Melvin's pants have been tested for blood, but came back negative. 
and the knife and shotgun had been examined for fingerprints, but none were found. But to be honest, even if they'd found Melvin's prints, that wouldn't make it an open and shut case. I mean, after all, the shotgun and knife were from the family home. So it wouldn't be surprising that Melvin's prints might be found on him. McCormick then meets with Assistant District Attorney Riley Shaw, then head of the Juvenile Division. The two men then phoned Billy Mills, a former longtime judge, who was the prosecutor who dismissed the charge against Melvin in 1974. They wanted to see if they could find out more about why he dismissed the charge. I visited Mills, now 86, at his Arlington home recently with the same purpose in mind. He's a friendly man, his posture stooped over with time, but his mind is still sharp as a tack. And though he's handled thousands of cases since 1973, he still remembers Melvin Knox's. Though the details about the case are a little cloudy now, Mills says he remembers agreeing with homicide investigators that Melvin was the likely suspect in Donald's death. My theory on the case was that it was an accident, and he panicked and covered it up. So I asked him why dismiss the charge. The exculpatory statement with the physical evidence in the house that was consistent with that statement. I'm sure there was other evidence that I considered or lack of evidence that I considered, but basically that was it. Strong suspicion he was probably guilty, but that's not sufficient. Matt Smith and Brooke Panathos, the current prosecutors in the case, say they can't fault the former prosecutor for dismissing the case against Melvin. I probably would have dismissed it as well, just looking at the evidence that they had, uh, because the main thing you learn as a prosecutor is if you're going to step into court, you're going to bring it. You're going to try to get a guy convicted, especially for an offense this serious. You better be sure. You better be positive. So who broke the news to Jeff Sr. and Fern Rogers is unclear. Mills doesn't recall ever discussing the dismissal with the couple. He says back then, prosecutors rarely consulted with a victim's family. And neither Mills nor Detective McCormack can even say for sure that investigators in the case were told the charges had been dropped. Nothing in the case file indicates whether they knew. If the DA made the decision to dismiss the case, it was just dismissed. So it's possible that police therefore consider the case closed because they've made an arrest and the charge was at least initially accepted and maybe didn't ever realize that it had been dismissed? Probably wouldn't unless they checked on it, say whatever happened to this case. Which you would hope they would. I would think so in this type of case, yes. I can't ask the original detectives if they knew the charges had been dropped. Both have since died. But what we do know is from the moment the case was dismissed until being reopened in 2015, case records indicate nothing was done to further the investigation or try to strengthen the case against Melvin. That the case simply died, not to be resuscitated until 41 years later, rings of injustice to Jeff, a previous military investigator himself who knows how the criminal justice system is supposed to work. And I understand the, uh, uh, the process of you know, running out of evidence at the time, but, you know, it's that follow-on investigation, just like Detective Selwy and Detective McCormick did, you know, and they had uh, a whole lot less evidence now, you know, 42 years later mm -hmm. than they had, you know, a day after the murder. That's right. Um, that just, you know, uh, that screams that something mm -hmm. was not right. Somebody mm -hmm. did something wrong or somebody just didn't do something at all. That's right. You know, after that, after the, they determined, the DA determined that there was insufficient evidence, 
Somebody should have went to further dig, and there's no evidence that they did. Cynthia suspects she knows why, and she's not the only family member who feels this way. The only logical explanation is that, you know, they just didn't care. Back then, they didn't care. It was just insignificant, two little black kids, you know, one shot the other. Well, so. But this is not, this is not going to make or break my career. Unfortunately, A white kid sure. involved in that? That's a career maker. Or breaker. And, and that was the sign of the time. That her parents didn't push for justice in Donald's death is something Cynthia struggles with. What happened to him then and the way it happened, it, couldn't, it wouldn't happen today because we would respond differently. Then there was still that fear of the police where you just didn't do that. You didn't go down to their office and demand justice. McCormack can't say whether race played a factor in the case. But he says from the original reports he's been able to review, it does appear detectives back then did a thorough job. Mills, the prosecutor who dismissed the charge, insists that race was not an issue. We never considered race when we were evaluating our cases or trying. Do you think it's possible this case just kind of fell through the cracks? Once the case was dismissed, then probably nobody else is going to work on it unless something new comes up. McCormick sets about finding new evidence to push the case forward. But finding that link isn't going to come easy. He soon finds out that evidence in the case, the 16-gauge shotgun, the knife that had been buried in Donald's chest, the clothes that Melvin had been wearing that night, are all gone. Since 1973, the Fort Worth Police property room has been relocated three times and untold amounts of evidence lost. McCormick says he's not surprised that the evidence was gone. It's a common challenge faced by cold case investigators. Nor does he believe that his disappearance is a fatal blow to his investigation. The evidence had been tested already for fingerprints uh, and, and blood. So I kind of knew the answer. Of course, today the techniques are better. I, could, I would have retested it, but it had been tested. So I knew pretty much what the answer was. Realizing any new information in the case is going to have to come from a witness, McCormick decides to start at the top. He seeks out Melvin. He goes to a small apartment building on Bryan Avenue that until recently Melvin's parents owned. He knocks, the door opens, and there stands Melvin, now 57. Well, he was obviously older, uh, soft-spoken, uh, but I, I had done my research on him, so I kind of knew a fair share about him. He's not some this poor old man. Uh, he's had his hardships in life, uh, but I, you know, I knew who I was talking to, who was somebody that was experienced with the criminal justice system. And Melvin's rap sheet was lengthy, starting with a theft conviction less than four years after Donald's death. Since that time, he racked up an aggravated assault with a deadly weapon conviction and lots of drug convictions, the last occurring in 2010. McCormick asked Melvin if he'd be willing to talk about some old cases. Melvin agrees, and the two men ride together to the downtown police station. And eventually, the topic turns to what happened to Donald that August night, 42 years earlier. So I just asked him to tell me the story again, just as I was curious about what happened. He provided almost the identical story they provided to the officers and the detectives in 1973, except he added one significant change, that he had actually seen an intruder. Melvin describes the intruder as a white man, about 20 years old. He says he sees the man while running toward the back patio door after hearing the glass shatter and a shot ring out. 
He says the intruder pointed the shotgun at him, prompting him to run to his uncle's house. Right. So when you're telling a story 40 years later, you don't expect it to be identical. There's going to be variations of the story you're not going to remember. But a fact that significant, which you know that if something this bad happens in the neighborhood and there's a description, everybody's going to know it. The media is going to get that description out, be told to look out for this subject. The fact that that was never mentioned and he's going to bring up that he now saw an intruder, I thought, that's not just a variation in the story. That's a lie that he doesn't remember he didn't tell in 1973. So McCormack begins to press Melvin on the inconsistencies of his story. Like, how can someone break into your house and within a minute find the family shotgun and shoot your friend? Melvin is obviously aware of where this conversation is now headed and tells the detective he doesn't want to talk anymore. McCormack drives Melvin back home, then heads to the house of Melvin's uncle, Emmett Meshaw. So Meshaw's account, given back in 1973, is that he'd been watching TV on the night of the shooting when his nephew suddenly runs into his house agitated, like he's got something to say but he can't spit it out. And eventually Melvin is able to tell his uncle that his house had been broken into and his friend killed. Now that Melvin ran to his uncle's house is in itself strange. I mean, Meshaw at that time lived about two miles away. And to get to his house, Melvin would have had to have run past several homes and businesses, places where he could have easily have sought help. And it's also weird that Melvin would tell his uncle that his friend is dead. I mean, by his own accounts to police, Melvin never went inside the house after hearing the glass shatter and the gunshot. So how would he know? Now it's 76, Misha agrees to talk to McCormick, but provides little help to the detective. He does tell McCormick that Melvin never told him that he saw the intruder. So determined to get answers, McCormick sets about re-interviewing other witnesses whose names appeared in the 1973 case file. And while each interview confirms what investigators had been told four decades earlier, the detective is quickly realizing he's at a roadblock. He still has nothing new to tie Melvin to the murder. But the very next month, almost 42 years to the day since the shooting, a big break in the case would emerge, and it would come from a very unexpected source. Coming up in the next episode of Out of the Cold, a shot in the dark brings Detective Mike McCormack the new evidence he needs to push the Donald Rogers murder case forwards. That's when I knew that, that, that the family knew what happened and the family had kept that a secret. And this was my chance to find out what really happened. But will Donald's siblings finally get the justice they seek? The state of Texas versus Melvin and then Knox. State's ready? Out of the Cold is produced by Steve Wilson, edited by Lee Williams, and written and narrated by me, Deanna Boyd.